0: Welcome to the Non-Aligned Podcast. This is where we talk about the politics of the Indo-Pacific, breaking through geographical and ideological boundaries. In this episode, we discuss populism in the wake of the Donald Trump experience and after the dramatic return to Indonesia of a leading Muslim cleric who spent the last three years in exile in Saudi Arabia. Our guests are Sydney Jones, who is the former Southeast Asia director of the International Crisis Group, an organization which put out an extraordinary statement leading up to the US election, warning of the risk of violence. Sydney is the founder and director of the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict, or IPAC, based in Jakarta. And Liam Gammon, who is the former editor of New Mandala and a PhD student at the Australian National University, where he is currently writing a dissertation on populism in Indonesia this episode we were plagued by production issues, but we got there in the end. I'm Quinton Tembi in Singapore, and I'm joined by co-host Mare Supriyapma in Jakarta. Let's get into it. Sydney, I wanted to ask you first, you've just come back from the U.S., and you, you were there for about a month. What was it like over there? What's the, what was the mood during the, the latter stages of the campaign?
1: Well, I was in New York, which is anti-Trump country, and everybody was on edge. No one was sure of what the outcome was going to be. Everyone was convinced he was going to hang on, which is exactly what he's doing. And... When I was back here, as the votes were beginning to come in, it was just touch and go. People wanted to believe that Biden was a winner. They didn't wanna believe that the race was so close. And it was uh, a real fear of what that kind of populism has done to the United States. And 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 in effect, how much he's weakened in democratic institutions.
0: What did you make of that that statement and report that the ICG put out about this, about the risk of uh, violence around the election in the U.S. Because you used to work well, for the ICG. Well, I
1: think we were concerned that uh, that there would be violence. I mean, people were talking about a second civil war. Uh, Given the polarization involved, and given Trump's call to white supremacists in the past to, you know, that remark he made about stand back, stand by. Uh, But, uh, you know, so far we haven't seen any major outbreaks, but it still hasn't gotten to the point where he's willing to leave, and he may have. Uh, a desire to call in his militias before he goes. I mean, it's just unpredictable at this stage.
0: This is really why I wanted to get you on to ask you how much stock you put in in that these warnings and this risks. And and actually, as we as we speak, I think if you do a, a search for Google News with the word coup, you'll find a sort of proliferation of articles by people talking about. The, the possibility of a coup in a kind of very calm way, uh, you know, thrashing out the different risk factors and so on uh, in the New Yorker and at Vox by Ezra Klein. And there's a, there's a bunch of them. But there's also a, a, a big debate I noticed on the left in the US about, with, with one side saying that this is really just a beat up, this is liberal panic. And another side, this is just within the left saying, well, in fact, no, there's these clear red flags. And you've spent most of your career working in Asia and looking at authoritarian regimes and political violence in Asia. So I wanted to get you on to ask you um, uh, more than anything, this question, what do you make of, of the risks in the US coming from the perspective of Asia?
1: Well, I think that we are facing the same kind of regime that we faced in Asia before. Uh, we're facing somebody who is an authoritarian by nature with a party behind him that will back anti-democratic measures. Part of me won't believe, doesn't believe that we're going to see a coup or massive violence, that in the end, uh, there will be pressure even from the courts that Trump has stacked to abide by democratic measures. But you know, I didn't believe he was gonna get elected. I didn't believe that the that this election would be so close. So I don't believe in my own disbelief any longer.
0: Yeah, I get that the intuitions for something that hasn't happened before is is you know could be totally off and it reminds me not to sort of hog the the questioning here but just one one last thing this reminds me of is um Tom Popinski at Cornell had an article out uh a few years ago I think that talked about this phenomenon and how you know someone coming from the perspective of studying authoritarianism in in other parts of the world uh he he wrote that the risk with the US is people aren 't familiar with how subtly and how how the process can happen by a, by a kind of process of normalization, so there isn 't sort of dramatic mood, mood music when authoritarians when autocrats take power it's it 's a kind of slow process, and you know you wake up one day and and you realize you 're a banana republic to paraphrase someone
2: oh uh, no I mean I think that 's precisely the point i mean i don 't think it's a coincidence that some of the people who 've been so prominent in drawing attention to the warning signs of democratic regression in the US are, in fact, comparative political scientists. You know the perspective that um, comparativists have on uh, you know democratic breakdowns in quote unquote the the third world or what President Trump would call shithole countries. Um, I don't think that makes them sort of hypersensitive or overly sensitive to the science of democratic regression. I think it actually is a really valuable, um, I guess, I, I think, I think, I think it allows us to see what is happening in the United States with so much more clarity. If we look at it in comparison, in direct comparison to what would happen in say, you know, in Indonesia or, um, Yeah, but two
1: things, two things. Know, we, one in, in is a- that, not only comparative political scientists, but also historians. I mean, look at the people who were making analogies to the Weimar Republic. But I think it's also uh, elitist to look at academics as being the, the people who best analyze the current situation, because there are a lot of people, ordinary people, for whom... This election wasn't a do-or-die test of democracy. It was just completely irrelevant to them. I mean, people people in in parts of the black community looking at Biden and and saying this person doesn't represent me. And okay, I I think Biden and his team will do so much better a job. And, and even on the COVID side, they're already paying a lot of attention to the disparities in the way treatment is provided and so on. But it's just that it's not just the people at the top of the spectrum who are thinking about this, but it's, it's, it's America has been transformed in ways that I don't think we're even beginning to grapple with.
2: I think that's, I mean, the thing that um, Quentin sort of mentioned um, a moment ago is really important here. I mean, I think a lot of, in, in the West, I get the feeling that there's a colloquial understanding of what a, what a you know, democratic breakdown looks like. And that's, you know, the tanks roll up in the town the square radio station. and, you know, the junta takes coal. Of, yeah, exactly. The radio station. And then you've got some general on TV and then, you know, it's a coup d'etat. And, and that's just not what you know democratic regression looks like in the modern world it's 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 this really often quite long very subtle process of weakening of democratic norms and the thing is that it, it creates a dilemma for people who want to raise the alarm right because every time you say this is a weakening of democratic norm, this is an emergency, this is an emergency, people look around and go, hang on a minute, wait, no, we're, li- we're still living in a democracy. What are you yes, talking about? You
1: know? So
2: it's very it's very easy to be accused of overreacting, you know, crying wolf and so Trump, on.
1: Many of them deeply believe that they're the real Democrats and it's the – I mean, they're the real little D Democrats and it's the big D Democrats that are trying to subvert the process. I mean, there's real belief. I've got a cousin in Missouri who is absolutely convinced that Joe Biden is going to bring socialism, if not communism, to the United States and that Trump is the only defense against it. And it's he who will defend the institutions of Abraham Lincoln. I I I swear
0: he believes it. Well, Marty, Muddy, you mentioned the Thomas Frank thing here, which is important to to mention. I think the the sort of left liberal critique of of this would be to say, you know, as Frank has said, that uh, you know the people, you know, the sort of working class in the in the flyover countries. From that perspective, you can see how they feel like they're they've been. Sought out by the Democrats and and now, uh, are sort of looking for other political homes.
3: Yeah, I think I think this is a very interesting uh, uh, phenomenon in, in the US right now. I guess at uh, the other day I forgot the name of the author. I read the articles in the Atlantic, which which I think it's similar to Frank. Outline the difference between American electorates. You know, uh, there's two things. I think I think uh, is very very crucial when we when we uh, read the exit polls. Uh, one is a uh, geography, uh, the urban uh, versus rural, and the second thing is uh, education which is, this is a compounded uh, factors, you know. Uh, most of the college educated living in the urban areas and uh, tend to be more liberal. And in uh, and, uh, and, and, and the rural areas, are non-college whites, and also the other ends is uh, 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 more uh, multicultural uh, versus white. And the other day I even joke with you that even the, in their drug choice, you know, it's it's a difference. Uh, this is a two, two uh, kind of society that 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 uh, uh, living together but never even drug communicate use is with each other. Uh, yes, the ever drug uses are polarized. Like uh, marijuana smoking people who lives is tends to be liberal, and crack uh, uh, what's that? Uh, crack uh, cocaine people tend to live in in rural areas, and you look at the. Op- Opioid crisis, for example, it's mostly occur in the rural, rural regions of I'm America. I'm not sure
1: that's true. And I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I think I think that uh, one of the things that we have to wait and see from the analysis of the election results is why Trump got so much of the Latino vote in various places. Why some of the educated vote did go to Trump in some areas and why Joe Biden got some of the old white male vote i mean there it, it, there some results from this election that confound stereotypes
2: i mean this is this is why i mean i look at the commentary that's coming out of the us and this is just such a fascinating and totally sort of baffling (laughs) moment in Western politics. And you could say the same of, you know, the UK and Brexit and so on. I mean, the divide, the divides between the two political camps, between Democrat and Republican or, you know, Labor and Tory in the UK now um, have so much to do with this kind of culture war divide that in some senses really transcends economic class, transcends, I mean, you know, in some ways it's not, it's not totally related to say ethnicity or religious belief or religiosity or what have you. I mean, it's like, I I don't know. I just feel like, um, it's so difficult to make sense of, you know, where the political, why the political cleavages that are emerging in Western politics are emerging because it's it's everything is cultural. But you know now. something in, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm totally baffled but by it's, this.
1: It, you know? I was I was you know, staying I, yeah. in Staten Island, where my brother lives, which is a very strongly Republican area, and the three mm-hmm. issues that were of most concern, and you could pick this up from the campaign ads of both the Democrat and Republicans running for Congress from Staten Island, were the absolute conviction of the Republican candidates that the Democrats were going to go socialist, they were going to close down the economy as a way of dealing with COVID, and that they were going to defund the police. And the defunding the police issue and the propaganda value that that had for the Republicans was just gigantic
0: right yeah and i thought i actually thought that would get trump across the line that defund the police and even the um you know michael tracy who's this gadfly on twitter did a tour of of places like minneapolis and elsewhere after the some of the unrest following the george floyd killing and he made a sort of he made a catalog of these sort of uh, mostly minority-owned businesses that had just been destroyed and forgotten, and it was an unfashionable thing to cover. And so I thought, okay, well, this is really going to make a difference and help Trump. But then, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I can see from from the results, uh, it didn't make any difference. You think it did? It I
1: think I think the I think it did make a difference, and I think the branding of the Democratic Party. As the party that wanted to defund the police and remove any semblance of law and order was a factor in why so many people in the United States and in that central part of the nation voted for Trump.
2: So Sydney, I mean, you're probably the only person here who remembers sort of the the, the Nixon era. I guess <laughs> do, do you? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I mean yeah, yeah. sorry, that's, uh, <laughs> that's rude, but 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 it's true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Do, do you in, in the Trump era and the sort of the backlash against the new new left and wokeism and everything, does it does it is there anything in this that reminds you of the late sixties and the, the Nixon era? I don't in, in terms of you know law and order politics and you know the counter counterculture and the counterculture backlash and blah blah blah.
1: I don't don't think it's similar because I think there was a a real movement in the 60s that combined civil rights, anti-war, free speech, and then anti-Nixon and the crimes that he was accused of but it all kind of blended together. And we had all those assassinations at the same time, especially of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy coming so close to that. And you don't get any sense of movement, especially the Black Lives Matter isn't the same and hasn't mobilized enough people in the same way to provide the counterweight to the conservative agenda
3: I think yeah I think I think I'm, i what was I was interested in with the interview with uh, Bob Casey uh, uh, a US senator, senator from uh, Pennsylvania I I happen to know this 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 region's quiet uh uh, intimately because I live in Freeville, New York near Ithaca and the border of the Pennsylvania and then on my way back to New Jersey, I usually and I usually stop by at Scranton and uh, I stay there for quite a while with my friends and yeah, I think uh, Bob Casey told in that interview that no uh, us president ever uh uh except Ronald Reagan can make all of these people in the region of uh, Pennsylvania go to vote and actually uh, uh uh Trump is real in the in the uh what is that whats so-called the deplorable uh people <laughs> he's uh, real in uh, uh yeah I see uh, among the people who feel that they are not Part of the system, and they they come out quiet and mass uh, during the election in two thousand sixteen, and again in two thousand and twenty, and then uh, uh, yeah, and also I I saw the exit poll. Uh, Sydney, right? That uh, Latino, some of the Latino, especially Cuban uh, American. Uh, goes to Trump mostly and some black male persons that go to uh, 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 Trump uh, increasingly and also LGBT people. Trump got more votes right now than compared to 2016. And then, yeah. But on the other hand, you see that uh, uh, almost overwhelmingly Black women uh, goes to Biden and I think the Black women voters is really a key to Biden's uh, what is a success in the election. So I think these kind of things, uh, what kind of uh, issues, this is I think we need to address that these voters are uh, attracting to Trump and what kind of issues that attracting to Biden? That's, but I, that's, no, I think that's that's one of the
1: people that's mm-hmm. got to get a medal or, or, or something is Stacey Abrams from Georgia, who uh, had, she was cheated out of the election for governor. And right, right. she became the driver of getting out the votes for Biden. I mean, she was determined she was not going to let this machine that tried to destroy the right to vote for large swaths of the Georgian population, she was determined that that was not going to happen. And she, she worked miracles. I hope they I mean, I I, I know she'll be recognized somehow, but, uh, man, I hope she gets a cabinet post that does her justice.
0: Well, that's the next big big test, right, is what happens in Georgia because there's two um, Senate roads. Oh, don't forget
3: also Detroit, uh, uh, Quinton. Right. Detroit is a – Detroit – Biden won Michigan in only 11 out of 80-something counties. But these 11 counties is the pack of the black people. So the black people just came out and mass to support him. So that's why Detroit especially, I think Detroit, women also. I saw the the number. Uh, women also take up really really big control of the election for Biden.
0: Um um are we um are we still talking about America? Well, if you want to, but but then if you want to say one last thing and then I thought we'd segue to uh to our part of the world
2: no i mean i've got a good a segue as any i mean basically I, I always get tired about you know all this all this sort of you remember in 2016 all this reporting about duterte Ro- rodrigo duterte in the philippines being the trump of the east or you know you would say right. um you know Prabowo being the trump of the or whatever you know and in t- in last year in indonesia trump-like rhetoric and so on and so on They've got it. The completely, they're, you know, the journalists have got it the wrong way round. I mean, Trump really is, you know, an, a, a a a a manifestation in the American context of something that was, you know, been completely commonplace in all sorts of other presidential systems uh, elsewhere in the third world. I would say, you know, implicitly Right, that and, and I feel like third I world
0: should Country. mention. Sorry, sorry to step on your line, but I feel like I should mention at this juncture that you are the author of. I'm holding it up to the microphone. Is populism a threat to Indonesian democracy? Which is uh, a, an article of yours, scholarly article in Eve Warburton and Thomas Powers' new book, "Democracy in Indonesia: From Stagnation to Regression." What's the question? Was well, wasn't that a smooth enough plug? I was just trying to, I was just trying to set that up, uh, set you up as someone who's thought about this a lot before. And what does – because, I mean, one thing, the you're more, more of a serious political scientist than the rest of us here, and I thought you might be able to say, what does the literature from political science on populism uh, tell us about this, apart from the fact that Trump obviously didn't invent this style of politics?
2: Right, okay. um. um <sighs> Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's an old joke, you know. To each, to each his own definition of populism. Um, it's been, I mean, more than half a century. Uh, you know, y- you've had more than half a century of political scientists trying to get and sociologists and historians and and everyone trying to get together and come up with one single definition of what populism is, what causes it, what its effects are, and so on. And no one can really agree. And and you know, um, but. Uh, I, I think you can start off with maybe thinking about what it isn't, and look, this, in my opinion, is what it isn't. So there's this kind of um, there's a there's a, a journalistic or a, or a colloquial understanding of what populism is, and that's you know you, you will you will open a newspaper and you'll see things like populist policy, um, which basically means any kind of policy. Uh, typically redistributive policy that sort of violates some kind of uh, classical liberal ideal, you know, some kind of economically inefficient mm. redistributive policy. Or you'll see it in another sense, you know, a populist response to, you say, crime in the suburbs is over-policing and excessive sentencing, you know, sort of talk back radio politics, that kind of populist politics. Mm. That's what populism to me, isn't. That's just a very simplistic and not particularly satisfactory understanding of what populism is. So for me, and I should emphasise that for me, because there are serious differences among political scientists um, about what populism is, um, as far as I'm concerned, populism is a political strategy um, that you employ when you don't have an organisation you don't have some kind of intermediary institution, a political party, a you know religious organization, a civil society movement, to do your voter mobilisation for you, right? So mm-hmm. it's something that you do. It, 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 populism is a kind of politics that has an emphasis on the disintermediation of the relationship between a personalistic leader and a mass following, mm-hmm. right? Uh, right.
0: So it's kind of okay. like, It's like it's like a political.
2: So startup.
1: no wait a second. So 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 I think you can have a political party and a mass organization base and so on. But what you have is the ability to jump over those intermediary organizations and talk directly to people, and that's what social media and the internet has made possible. And that's why Trump's tweets are so important.
2: Absolutely. That is an excellent mm. example. I mean, Sydney has just done a much, much better job of explaining my whole mm-hmm. line of thought than I did. The yes. I mean, it, it's – yeah. It, well, I'm all my own PhD. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I had any idea, I would have finished already, right? Um,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
0: no.
3: <laughs> yeah, can it, it. We can yeah. finish it on, on
0: air right now. Let's Let's go. <laughs> oh crikey! Um, but yeah, I mean, look, look.
2: There's there's differences between polit- you, You'll the the biggest sort of difference among political scientists is whether populism is an ideology or whether populism is a practice. Now, a lot of the, I mean, look, this 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 could get very ponderous, um, but I'll, I'll just. Sum it up by saying a lot of the literature on populism as ideology has come out of Europe mm. and has come out of the West. Um, this right. idea that populism is a what they would call a what some what some scholars call a thin ideology that attaches itself to you mm. know a right wing nationalist program or attaches itself to a you know left wing redistributive um, program. Uh, In the sense that it's it's this kind of political idiom that emphasises, you know, uh, put upon, victimised people uh, against a sort of corrupt uh, elite minority. Blah 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 blah. You know, we all know the drill um, with Mm -hmm. that regard. So for me, um, I'm I think that a lot of the literature that's come out of study of Latin America that posits populism as a kind Mm. of political strategy, a political practice, a form of political organisation with an emphasis on disintermediating the relationship between a leader and his followers, Uh, that I think is actually more useful for analysing populism in, say, the Indonesian context or the Philippine context. And in this... Mm. uh, So, the reason why I think that is... That is really important, is because so one of my favorite one of my favorite uh, pieces of writing on populism with this sort of was was this mid eighties article by Nikos Muzellis. I, I forget the exact title, but you know Nikos Muzellis, this this um, kind of uh, very prominent uh, Marxist scholar, actually. Uh, wrote about the difference between populism and clientelism as opposing forms of political incorporation in, you know, what we would then have called the third world. Mm -hmm. So, you have the clientelist mode of political incorporation, right, Um, which basically, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as the name implies, uh, you use clientelistic relationships between politicians and their followers – to get people into supporting political parties, to mobilize people to support a political party or candidate.
0: So it's about the, money. It's, it's money Exactly, yeah.
2: Exactly. It's the particularistic exchange of goods. It's jobs for the boys. It's contracts. It's, you know, favorable. Right. You know, it's pork barrel projects and so on. But a critical part of the clientelist organization is the fact that the brokers – uh, you know the brokers at the grassroots have a high degree of autonomy right it's actually sure. very it 's actually very difficult to give a nice nutshell definition of, of what populism is um, simply but because I don't think you
1: need to do i don 't think you need to give a definition of what populism is. I think you you can look at what 's happening in different places and in Indonesia and in the United States. What's happening is majoritarianism. It's a majority which feels threatened by outsiders coming in, and the Mm. leadership has been able to mobilize that fear in a way that suggests that only by choosing this person will you be able to stem that rising Mm -hmm. tide.
0: That that made me think of something. Can we think of an example of populism where there isn't a maj- uh, a majoritarianism thread to it? I don't know. But but Liam, I I actually I've read your article and I think this the populism as, as a strategy um, theory is right. I think that's the theory that's the best approach, and it and it's also the approach I think that that comes from having a sort of non-US um, perspective, you know, a perspective fr- of looking at it from not just Western Europe and the U.S., but also from you know the comparative literature on Latin America and uh, Asia, because it yeah. can be both left and right wing. It can be it can be Bernie Sanders. It can. But it
1: always plays on fear. That's it, and it plays on fear of outsiders or people who right. are seen as being outside the mainstream.
3: Well, yeah, but I think uh, by by seeing the population in terms of that, we are missing the point that uh, what the populism is uh, appealing is uh, to the to the common people, and what the sentiments that they bring is uh, anti elites. Even though the most of the this is a kind of a manipulation by the elites in order to get the the masses to support them by. Uh, uh, what is that uh, turning uh, them against the other elites? Turning the masses against the other elites. That's uh, I think uh, that's as simple as that. Well, of course they need they they could they could have a political party in order to do that uh, using the political party using the infrastructure of the party, or they can do it uh, as a personal cult or or pro- probably both. The party that that. Uh, taken out of their soul or their ideology like the republican party and then put it in put the trump in there and yeah you have a uh, because of the easier the communication television and something like that you have this kind of uh, people and also if you go to indonesia i'm just curious whether liam think that uh, habib uh, Muhammad Rizik Sihab is a is a populist or not? Thank
0: God, someone because. has made this segue to Indonesia
3: <laughs> <laughs> because, because you see that uh, look at the people who are welcome him. And then look uh, how the liberals, the uh, ur- ur- urban middle class people, reacting to uh, Rizik, and uh, not all urban middle class. Some urban middle
1: class.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are also uh, not, not, not all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some 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 of uh, urban middle class are so conservatives, but this is the liberal one. And um, uh, Quinton yesterday uh, shared a, a video with me about one of the uh, union leaders complaining in front of a Rizik about this current situation, how the, the regime is not really working for them. And then uh, at the other end, uh, all of these liberal middle class, uh, urban middle class, you see they they found a new icon uh, in order to contending uh, Rizik, uh, which is... Uh, Nikita Mirzani, you know <laughs> this this lady is uh, it's it's a kind of funny for me uh, because yeah, you know, I don't think uh, I don't think
1: that I, I I don't think that's a serious balance. I don't think she. No, no, is, I know, uh, I know, it's not counterweight. serious. Counterweight.
3: I don't think a yeah. well. I, th- I know it's as well. I think the thing
1: to I think we need to look at what's going to happen on second of December because I think right. that Habib Brzezick. Right has realized that uh, or he planned it this way, that his homecoming can be built into a, a momentum that reaches a crescendo crescendo on the 2nd of December, which is already being advertised as the the unveiling of the revolution, right. the moral revolution. Mm-hmm. And, that you talk mm-hmm. about populists, you've got a populist leader there who wants to show that he's a power broker and can be the critical kingmaker for 2024. So right. let's mm-hmm. see what happens. But but mm-hmm. I think there's uh, there, there are a lot of questions about if you know that's what's happening, is there any way to stop it, dilute it, Use the protocols for COVID of trying to disperse it, but so far nobody's lifted a finger to do anything.
0: Well, and that's been right. noticed. And one of the one of the comments I thought that was very perceptive uh, perceptive about all this was that uh, someone said, "Look at the way the anti job creation law activists were were treated. How they were how the protests were bro- of, of workers and students were broken up." Um, broken up pretty harshly, and then compare that to the way that this this um, you know these masses were were treated. Who you know obviously broke um, all COVID protocols to greet Habib Rizik's return from. Protocol
1: protocols stopped twenty eight flights or more. Right wrecked terminal three. I mean. Uh, Nobody nobody was interested in stopping this, so it means, who benefits from this? And you can go through, systematically, almost every element of the political spectrum who can derive some kind of benefit from mm-hmm. Habib Rizik's backing.
0: Right. Well, can I, can I b- yeah, before we go into that, can I go on a populist rant of my own? Just to.
1: You can, but
0: I'm not going to stay around forever. Okay, sure. Well, well, no. Just to just to explain what Mare talked about with the the video uh so what what's fascinating is last night islamic defenders front put out a video of this guy attending one of their events uh that day who claimed to be i don't know if this is true but claimed to be a union activist and he's and it turns out to be a quite a well-known figure on indonesian twitter with fifty thousand followers under the handle of kafir Radicalis. and he, and, he, and he says he's, a, he says he's a sort of a radical Catholic, um, if you believe this. I don't know what to make of this. But anyway, the point was FBI put this out as a kind of overture to the workers and to say here's a kind of crossover possibility um, on this issue of the job creation law. And so what I think you can see, you can see people like Rizik and people around him thinking that they can make an alliance, uh, a populist alliance, a coalition Again, incorporating workers and basically an anti-capitalist uh, coalition, and and that that's that's the sort of the way to challenge the current government.
3: Uh, <laughs> I think I think uh, Rizik's role in here is not to be, uh, you know, I, I, I doubt that he will make it into the uh, election, but he surely will uh, have. Uh, what is that? He's a noise. Uh, yeah, whatever. I don't. I don't think he will survive the election if he goes to the into the ballot box. And and he's just an outsider. And I think it's a. He will be uh, valuable if he stay in that way. But I
1: don't think his uh, intention. I don't think his intention. I don't think his intention. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I know into certain, the ballot mm-hmm, box. Mm-hmm. I think his intention right. is to be a kingmaker and that's why Anis Pasladen is going out of his way to embrace him it's why Fadli Zon is going out of his way to embrace him and i think we will see other polit- that's what he wants to prove by december 2nd he wants to prove that his ability to mobilize people in the hundreds of thousands is going to become an indispensable asset to politicians not him himself. He wants to be the power broker.
0: Sydney, I wanted to ask you, do you think that there's, I mean, what do, what do you think about this? I see two other interesting things happening now with Rizik. One is that a little bit like Abu Bakr Bashir, there's something going on where I think, you know, the line that Bashir was a spiritual leader and it wasn't true, yet because it was sort of repeated often enough. Uh, it, it There was a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy dimension to it. Over over time, he did kind of take on a kind of status that he never actually had among his own people in his own organization even. And I wonder whether we're starting to see that now with with Rizik, who was really a figure of, of fun for many years. And now he's sort of... Uh, somehow through the, the process of exile and age and, and time and so on, become a national figure.
1: No, but Marcus wrote about that earlier. It, he was the national figure because of the anti-Aho campaign. Right. It was. It yeah. wasn't his exile. It wasn't his staying outside and then coming back. It was that he built up that momentum and what's interesting now is who is coming to embrace him and stand beside him. So it's not Bakhtiar Nasir, none of the pure Salafis, the uh, Wahda Islamiyah hasn't come out to uh, to embrace him. But it's hatei Ismail Yusanto, is back there in full force. And so is... Uh, uh, the kind of solo radical establishment that was just on the ver- you know on the on the edge, but not in the violent extremist camp. So uh, uh, he's staking out a position, but there are a couple of key elements who aren't on board, and that's also going to be interesting to watch.
3: Um. Sydney, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is this, yeah, is this, um, um, I think all of the people, especially from the uh, Islamic political force right now, they just, uh, I, I just uh, watched this in this uh, weeks. Uh, they are all flocked to uh, Rizik. Yeah. Do you think that they don't have any kind of leadership right now inside of this, this uh, while it's a conservative, hardline uh, Muslim yeah, community. I think that's right.
1: And I think there's no politician on any part of the political spectrum that has any of the charisma that Habib Rizik mm-hmm. can bring to bear. That's what's... and So so uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see whether the Ridwan Kamils and the Ganjar Pernowos and some of the other very attractive politicians can bring to bear a coalition building skill that that will rival risks. I think they probably can. And I think that we're overcome by the moment and we're going to be, continue to be overcome by the moment through December 2nd. But then I think reality is going to set in and, I don't. I'm not sure that this phenomenon by itself is going to phenomenon by itself is going to uh, uh, be triumphant.
3: I think this is a very very important reminder. December second, and then yeah, <laughs> we need to uh, save the date for this. Quentin. Yeah, and
0: I think it'll be. I think we really need to watch closely how much they try to incorporate incorporate uh-huh. a labor. Uh, anti job creation <laughs> law uh, thread into it, and to see whether they make. Well, they've that.
1: already said that. They've already said it's going to be anti LGBT, anti labor law, right? Uh, and uh, I don't know whether we'll see an anti China element or not, but but that's another thing to watch. Yeah, I think
0: I mean this is what something I've been writing about recently, and have a have an article out soon on on this. And I think that's always in there, and it's and it sometimes. You know, hidden inside code words like anti-communist, and so on. So, I kind of think populism is here to stay in Indonesia because we've had the Prabowo candidacy. We've had Jokowi run as a populist, but governors as as Mm -hmm. something else, really.
3: Oh, what what your take on Prabowo? Because I heard that he's the one who sponsored, who, he's the one who said uh, to Jokowi that he should bring Rizik home and then uh, uh, also to free all the political prisoners, which is uh, used to be uh, his followers. What do you take an hint? I think there are a lot uh, of who, candidates. Think? I
1: think there are a lot of candidates for people who want to see Rizik back. And J. is one. I don't think I don't think Tabo is going to be the major player in this game.
0: Yeah, well, the other obviously, obviously, the other person mentioned was uh, Yudo Yono, who there was an article last week met, uh, with Rizal Ramli saying that he had been told by um, people in the government that Yudo Yono was funding uh you know the the
1: when do you regard result Ramli as
0: a voice of truth no but i i I, i'm just (laughs) i don't actually but i but i think in this case he's probably right because it it corresponds with with other information that well well actually i should clarify not to say that i think that that Yuro Yono was funding uh these the Islamist mobilizations and in fact he strongly denies that he was but the point is that the that people in the government are alleging that he did and so he has had to Yuro Yono has to, has had to come out and deny that he was funding so so he in any case is one of the other senior figures as a former president Yeah so president. what
1: about this alleged agreement with Bin I mean what right. what's going on there I mean right. That's uh, on the record where, What's BG's position Yeah
0: By the way, I noticed um, uh, someone pointed out to me that that if you look at the coverage, Jakarta Post and Compass has decided not to refer to him as Habib. They just say Rizik Shihab. And yes, one of the first things he did when he got got home was to say we have this arrangement with BIN, the state intelligence agency, and that he's not going to reveal unless in cases of emergency. So very mysterious. But it... um, It points to, well, this it does actually point to this other this other big issue, which I don't know if you have seen this, but there's been a few articles out recently by people seeking to comment on on this moment of the the return from from exile of of Rizik, to say that this is all connected to terrorism, to ISIS and to Jemaah Islamiyah, and I just I can just see it reminds me of post the Bali bombing when. Commentators were conflating all kinds of different Islamists together and I I worry about the international media and being softened up to kind of equate you know Islamic well, defense from There's with. a
1: list there's a list circulating of people who were in FPI who, who however briefly who were subsequently arrested for terrorism. And it's a list of about 30 people. And uh, it, uh, it's clearly being used to promote the idea that uh, FBI is a gateway to terrorism, which it's not. And they're, they're, you know, this, this list has to be broken apart and dissected. But nevertheless, I mean, that's the Tito line.
0: Right, and so so it's true. It's it's sort of exceptions to the rule. It's true that there were individuals who broke away from the organisation and joined, milit- you know, terrorist groups. Um, but in fact, we're talking about you know antagonistic groups, right? We're to- aren't we? We're, yeah, in- for
1: the most part, we're talking about not. I mean, SPI is basically not to do ulama. It's the conservative wing of not to do ulama. They're traditionalists, right? And there's some people who look at Habib Rizik coming back, uh, kind of deliberately playing into the Khomeini theme. And you know, he's been accused of being a Shia before, but right. this is the kind of thing that is, you know, kind of exemplifies Shia leadership to be that you know the Imam Bazaar coming back with all these followers falling at his feet. It's not a sunni
0: phenomenon right yeah and i can i can see we're we're sort of back to the future now where there's an effort to conflate him with terrorism whereas the danger with that is apart from it just being wrong uh it misses the real uh concern which is that this is a kind of populism uh, that is a challenge to indonesian democracy
1: and that that plays into income inequalities that plays into income disparities that plays that's into correct. the fact that FPI has traditionally appealed to the urban poor as one of its major constituencies.
0: Right, which Made yeah, wrote correct, about yeah. recently, right? Yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, one way of putting it is if you uh, make you make if you make leftist populism, le- you know, leftist revolution, you know, for want of a better term, impossible, I feel as though you make kind of right-wing populism Inevitable in Indonesia. And so, you know, this is one way of channeling those kind of frustrations with oligarchy and with this kind of sclerotic elite. On that
1: note, I may leave
0: you. All right. Probably a good time to wrap it up.
1: Uh. <laughs> nice to talk to you all. Nice to talk to you all, Marty, If you ever want to have a croissant, let me know. I'd love to.
3: <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. I will. I have your number, actually. So okay. What the hell happened? Yeah, thanks. What the hell happened to
0: yeah, Liam? <laughs> every every possible thing that could have gone wrong, <laughs> <laughs> technically, in this. No, recording. I'm I'm
2: I'm here. I just didn't oh, have yeah, anything yeah. <laughs> really. I oh, just. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I just I saw no way of adding value. <laughs>
3: I think I think you you should you should have a last uh, uh, word about Rizik and populism, Liam.
2: Oh man, look if I've known if I've learned anything over trying to write a PhD on populism in Indonesia, it's don't even <laughs> don't don't start. Yes, one would have been better off hadn't one not started. So um, I'll uh, I'll yeah. just leave it at that.
0: All right. On that note, <laughs> Sydney, Liam. Thanks for doing this.
3: <laughs> it's been Cheers, it's everybody. been great. Thank you very much. Look, <laughs> bye, bye. bye 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 then. bye bye bye. Today.